Rommel appeared with the Africa Corps for the greatest fighting unit and best equipment in the world, tanks and gunnery, which we just simply did not have. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down the Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Point where you're going to I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the top like something. She did say, you've changed. The soldier put everything on the line to help one of our boys. Tobruk, El Alamein, Ley, Finchhafen, Tarakan, Labuan. Sergeant Robert James Knox Semple is a veteran of World War II, an artilleryman who fought Rommel twice, a rat of Tobruk who, after facing off the forces of fascist Italy and Nazi Germany in North Africa, found himself washed up on the shores of New Guinea and Borneo to fight Imperial Japan. For Bob Semple, it was a long and unrelenting war. He has one of the biggest stories we've ever covered on this podcast. And it was my honour to speak with Bob in his home in Melbourne. I'm Alex Lloyd in Melbourne today in the home of Robert Semple. Bob, let's start with your family military history. You had an uncle who served in Gallipoli. He served with the 7th Battalion, number 510, uh, private, and was killed at the landing and is at rest in Shrapnel Gully at uh, Gallipoli. Killed in action. Killed in action. 25th of April, 1915. 25th to 26th of uh, April. You were born and raised in Essendon, where we are today. Tell me a bit about your childhood. I was the only boy in the family. I had three sisters. My mother, both my mother and father, lived within the precinct of Essendon and Mooney Ponds and in this district. I was born here. I've lived here pretty well all my life except for journeys in action and all these sort of things and various pursuits that I had. Did all the normal things, played cricket, footy, rowed, interested in rowing, and all in all... uh, had a very happy life. How was your school life? I'm a product virtually of the Depression years, having been born on the 4th of May in 1920 and lived in my grandfather's house because my mother was mainly looking after my grandparents and we had ample room and we sort of grew up in that atmosphere. Went to school through the normal channels. Conditions were very tough. Be hard for people of today to understand what the Great Depression was like and that sort of thing. But what it did, it uh, developed, I'm sure, and didn't realise it quite at the time, but as life went on, I began to realise more and more that I had some responsibility as a young boy to assist my parents and enter into the spirit of the community, which was to help one another for more or less survival. And I'm serious about that. It was tough. We're always wise in hindsight. But I guess as you look back on it, that experience 
uh, allowed me to develop to the best of my skills, but I was always desirous of wanting to get to work as soon as I could. And you secured a job in the rag trade at a warehouse in Flinders Lane? Yes, I joined uh, one of the five big soft goods warehouses. The merchant in those days were more of a general nature, be they whether it's ironmongery or hardware and that sort of stuff, or in the rag trade. And I secured a position with a lovely old company that uh, had headquarters in, in Sydney, but a big place in Melbourne. Joined when I was at the company and fortunately got a job through the scouting movement. I connected with the scouts and I was introduced together with some other boys to the management and went through the process of being analysed and, and the uh, General Social Service Commissioner of the Scouts was a very influential man and he took uh, three or four of us to every warehouse of five big merchants in Flinders Lane and I was received a communication to present myself at a certain day at a certain time and advised that I'd be taking on board and to get myself in the menswear department a grade us coat and I started my duties in the basement and worked and remained with that company till they ceased to exist for a further 27 years. In 1936, you approached the Victorian Scottish Regiment in South Melbourne. What appealed to you about joining that regiment? Well, Alex, it was something that I felt was uh, challenging. It furthered my career, actually, going on from a scout. It was a similar type of thing. But uh, I was just interested in tradition and uh, the Scottishness of the organisation appealed to me for the simple reason that uh, my ancestry goes back through that line. Therefore, I aimed for the Scottish Regiment and made my way. I didn't even have a bicycle in those days, but we made it with some mates, made our way down to the South Melbourne headquarters of the Victorian Scottish Regiment and presented ourselves in a raucous big sergeant major in charge of the depot said, what do you fellas want? We said, we've come down here to join the regiment. He said, well, I've got news for you. He said, get in the queue. We said, well, what do you mean by get in the queue? He said, well, we're full. And we'll tell you whether we'll have you or not. And furthermore, you'll have to buy your own kilt. We said, hang on a minute, how much are these kilts? And he said, £3.10. Which is quite steep in those days. I started work at eight and six a week for 50 hours of work. It was the hour of those days in the wholesale trade. Uh, However, we departed the place and in due course were... I was advised to attend the rookie recruit course and therein lies my commencement. And from 16 years of age, oh, by the way, I couldn't afford to pay for my kilt. My parents were not in a position to, at that stage, so inquired if I might be able to deposit time payment for, for this kilt that I had to buy. And he said, yes, I still have the receipts for the kilt. Do you still have the but kilt? In the, I still have the kilt. The moths have had a go at it in the meantime, but uh, the fabric seems to have shrunk, but it no longer <laughs> fits me. I'm sure that's just uh, wear and tear <laughs> on the kilt's part. <laughs> Went on from there, of course, and when you're 16 to 18, and when you turned 18, you were by that time qualified to go straight into the battalion. And then from 18, of course, onwards... Uh, when I reached into the 1938, ready then to soldier on into greater endeavours and so forth, and the war broke out. Because by the time war broke out, you would be familiar with a machine gun and all those kind of basic military skills. Yes, 
And it being a Scottish regiment, I imagine you learned the bagpipes. I did. I actually started to learn the violin first from the age of about eight. I began to take lessons nearby. How my mother and father, she encouraged us all to be able to play some instrument because in those days there was no television, none of these sort of things, and a piano in the home, Sundays especially. The family would congregate around the piano and sing and do Anyone could recite a poem or play an instrument or do something like that. It was, uh, it was a blessing. And my mother said uh, she loved the theatre. All the musical tunes, the lyrics were always meaningful in those days. They seemed to me to be, anyhow. <laughs> Violin had provided me in those lessons to have a fair grounding of notation and appreciation of volumes and expression and all those sort of things. And I continued that on, matter of fact, I was about 15 or so. And in that course through it, grandfather thought it would be a good idea to drag on the bagpipes. They were able to secure a a tutor for me and, and, and I, in due course, found my way through the regiment when I'd reached 16 or by that time I'd had a fair handle on the, the, the pipes. Do you remember when you heard the news that Australia was now at war with Germany? Yes, that came through on the 3rd of September 1939 and it was broadcast, I have heard it broadcast. I'm not quite sure where I actually was at the time, whether it was at home or we were sort of expecting, obviously, that something was going to happen when that announcement was made. But not everyone had a, a reasonable radio anyhow in those days, but uh, we seemed to have had, my grandfather had a, and heard it on the, the wireless, the old wireless. How did you feel? I began to think fairly deeply because I could understand soldiering as a cadet for that period of time, two years in the cadet corps and, and probably nearly two years in the battalion. And we went down the way to a three-month camp. We're now into early 1940. The 6th Division was formed. It sailed early 1940 for the Middle East to house in Palestine for a start, which became the holding area for all Australian troops in the Middle East generally, except those special units that went to England and other places. I, together with some friends and mates in the unit, were not happy at being left behind, so we decided to dismiss ourselves from the militia, absent ourselves, in other words, and go out to the Caulfield Racecourse, which was a recruiting depot, together with uh, the local parks just out of Melbourne at Royal Park and the showgrounds and whatnot. Threw our hat in the middle, and I was seconded to the artillery because I volunteered to go wherever I could serve my country. And how much experience in artillery did you have by that point? I had nil experience of the artillery. Because it would be November 1940 when you in the 2nd 12th Australian Field Regiment arrives in Palestine. That's exactly right. Well, what we what we did, we we formed my regiment in Melbourne on uh, the first week of May 1940. That was after we'd finished this three months camp. This unit was to go to England and pick up 4.5s and 5.5s. That was how we, we formed up. And then things went bad in Europe. Dunkirk occurred. Equipment was lost. A large portion of the field artillery. We were then converted to a field regiment and became part of the 9th Australian Division 
together with the 2nd, 7th, 2nd, 8th Field Regiments. They were formed elsewhere, but we were all on 25-pounders, supposed to be. And therein, uh, we had not seen a 25-pounder. We trained on about half a dozen 60-pounders and 6-inch howitzers at Puckapunyal. It was insufficient guns to, 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 to do a lot of the drills and so forth. In fact, did our advance with drag ropes prepared to advance and hook onto the things to help us when we got into conditions. They were anchored to horse troughs that were cemented into the ground. That's how our imagination ran riot. So instead of drag this uh, 25-pounder gun, drag this horse trough and that simulates it Try for and you. pull it out of the ground. What great training. <laughs> Australia's <laughs> finest. <laughs> Anyhow, we, we sailed from there, of course, and formed up and finally sailed. Bob, let's jump to your arrival in Palestine. Yes, the journey, anyhow, of course, was uh, an interesting one. My regiment was sent across to Adelaide, of all places, to load because the ships loaded Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, and I was as sick as a dog for all the way. They'd converted the cabins into fours, and some had hammocks, it depended on the deck of where you were. Palestine and the artillery camp was uh, more in the northern part of that strip between Gaza, which we went across the side of the desert in cattle trucks. And we got there and then we were into vehicles and then were transported to a place called Costina. Those sort of camps were all these dotted establishments between Gaza virtually and Costina, just basics, main administrative building of a fairly substantial time. The rest of it was under canvas. Lobbed there in November, remained there then, no guns, few picks and shovels, and the principal entertainment was, and the physical exertion, was to march about 18 or 20 miles out, dig a hole the size of a 25-pounder. No gun, never seen a 25-pounder. Dig a hole and fill it in again and then march back again. That was a popular exercise. You've never seen a 25-pounder, but at least you now know how big it is based on the hole you had to dig. <laughs> exactly. 27 feet in diameter. And we remained there, of course, January, February and whatnot, because no guns to take with. You were just sitting there waiting for equipment Wait, to arrive Waiting to for use. something to happen. Before you get to Tobruk, you and your fellow diggers, are you fearful of the war that you're about to get involved with? Are you excited, anxious? How do you feel about the conflict you're marching into? The war overall was a fairly despairing sort of an outlook in, in the mind. The troops that were eyeballing one another were part of the Axis. The Italians were mainly responsible for Africa. That was their colony over the years that had been built up these various places, Shalom, Bardia, Tobruk, Derna, and all of these places that dotted across the top. They're naturally, on, as near to the seaboard as they possibly could be for obvious reasons because south of that end of the desert. Tobruk becomes a siege that is the longest in British military history with 14,000 Allied troops living in dugouts and caves while you withstand General Erwin Rommel's daily artillery fire, tank attacks and bombings. And you, Bob, are one of the legendary Rats of Tobruk, who are famous for being these tenacious Aussie bastards who hold out for eight months in the Libyan port of Tobruk against the Africa Corps. Do you remember when you received the orders, we're going to Tobruk? Yes, I do. But I think the reason why we were virtually chosen to, my regiment was chosen to go to Tobruk was because they were 
had a large percentage of very highly qualified officers and permanent military forces that were capable of handling what became our main weaponry, and that was all captured equipment. It being in the metric system and us being in the imperial system didn't help the the endeavours of the officers and the wonderful command that we did eventually. The event happened when the, they got 6th Division and the advancing 8th Army got to the other end of the, that's to Benghazi and up around that area. Rommel appeared with the Africa Corps for the greatest fighting unit and best equipment in the world, tanks and gunnery, which we just simply did not have. Now you're just making do with what you can we find. We were out. making do, and my regiment, you asked me about my regiment's engagement, the infantry of the 9th Division had followed into the desert, the 6th Division, because all this was happening in the confusion of what was probably one of the darkest parts of British history in the early part of the war. Here they are, they've won the credits and captured the territory, but all of a sudden the 6th Division, together with other troops, were taken over and deposited in as a gift to the uh, Greece and Crete area. I learned to respect Rommel's skills and ability, being on the other receiving end of the, in later conflicts and so forth, of the German fishing machine. Our infantry had gone forward with the 6th Division and were part of it. The balloon burst and the retreat began to take place in big multiples very quickly. Confusion and our infantry was falling back together with the, uh, the 8th Army. And as they came back through each of these places, uh, Derna and all these other forts came past Tobruk, and Tobruk was a situation. Uh, it was a, a garrison town. It had the water. It had the harbour. It was located with a, a fortress establishment. There was a semicircle arrangement from coast to coast, and the town sat out in a, a little headland there with a with a harbour. That was a fairly important place for the Italians. It became our retreat area. Moore said did a left wheel back into Tobruk again. The German army surrounded Tobruk and kept on going towards Egypt. Here in 360 miles from Alexandria lies this, this place called Tobruk. We were called upon as an artillery unit to prepare ourselves. They got us to Alexandria. And I said, right, you're going into Tobruk and whatever means we can get you. And then we mostly went in and destroyed the cover of darkness at night and that sort of thing. No guns. I went into Tobruk with uh, the bachelor. I went in with HMAS Vampire. The Vampire have been dead on these Australian destroyers were mostly doing the run uh, because part of their journey in was under aerial bombardment and so forth. The, the Germans were sitting between Tobruk and and the border. So you need the Tobruk Ferry Service. So to get in another, I, I went into Tobruk where they have a second water bottle in the middle of the night. That's it. And we, we, the Matlins are saying, "Right, I fellas, get off, get off, because we're loading wounded on the other side off a lighter." I can vividly remember we got off the under the lighter and hit the terra firma, taken by old diesel trucks up to a, to a clearing away from the harbour, which we were being shelled in any case. And there's a few picks and shovels there, and they said, see if you can scratch our while you threw the pick at the ground and bounced right back out again with us. We said, how long is this going on for? Well, we're having a game of cricket with a fill the bag up with rocks or something. And they said, no, you'll be introduced to some captured artillery in the morning. And there was this lager <coughs> of equipment, and I finished up on a 75 millimetre myself. 
the regiment fired 10 different pieces of artillery in its lifetime, my regiment, and it was the only regiment of the division that served in pretty well all of the campaigns. We used that 100 millimetres, 105 millimetre, 149s and 75 millimetre, all Italian equipment. About six old 60-pounders that had the range that was able to engage Barney and Bill, the big German gun that was shooting into the harbour. And there we remained on that equipment for all the time we were in Tobruk. I want to hear a bit more about the day-to-day work you're doing. So some days are you having essentially days off and no contact, no action? Are there days where you are just on artillery all the time? Tell me about some of the action you're doing. I would say that the unit fired something in the order of about 258,400 rounds. Our lifetime, I guess, could be best explained for the division to try and hold the, the system that represented our homes, especially the infantry, in a series of holes, some dugouts, some pillboxes, some trench and arrangements and whatnot. And we had our artillery and waddies, sort of water courses and so forth. Nothing other than sleep on the floor of the gun pit or in whatever holes you could you'd have a dig into a for protection, but the gun, there it is in the hole in the ground. And you have to be careful all the time because it's slit trench warfare lifestyle, so you yeah. poke your head up a bit too high and then you're exposed. Yeah, well, the infantry got more of that than we did. No trees on the place. One tree, a famous fig tree, of course, and the sun got a bit fierce. But probably the biggest drawback we had, really, when you got down to realities, one water bottle of water per day, per man, for all purposes. In the heat of the desert? Going on towards 45 or 48 or 50 degrees. Let's talk about the conditions. You've got, you're in a desert environment, searing heat, desolation, swarms of flies and fleas. How was the morale of your regiment? The message was indicated to us by a wonderful commander, which we, who we, Moore's head, who was Ming the Merciless, Ali Barber and his 20,000 thieves and all the rest of it. But he was a brilliant commander and we earned our respect and he was a great leader and we had wonderful officers and a determination because he said, let it be known there'll be no Dunkirk here. We will not be leaving the place. There will be no surrender. The only way we'll get out of here is to fight our way out of it. And the blokes accepted that and said, well, take your mother for the rabbits. That's it. You hang in there for eight months until you're relieved. It is incredible. But it must have been exhausting. You're on alert 24 hours a day, seven days a week, weeks and weeks on end. You don't know when you're going to be pulled out of there. No. It's endless. No, no, we didn't. It depended on the influences outside. We had no Air Force support. There could be raids because the Luftwaffe were operating out of, outside of the perimeter. Oh, those Stuka sirens and when the... Pl- Unbelievable. You've got to experience it, I suppose. They had a scream that seemed to... Everything seemed to be open and it howled all the way down and you could actually watch the bombs leave the plane. They came at such a steep angle and they just pointed the nose and they pulled away. There could be as many as three raids in a day on the town and it, even the hospital was bombed. And uh, the biggest raid, I think, it was considered to be about 100 planes on, on the area. But they concentrated largely on the uh, principal elements of sustenance, the likes of water, 
hospitals, naturally gun positions, the forward lines, they got their share, but most of the infantry engagements were by counter-battery fire and on our artillery position because you had no alternative places to move. It was uh, different to Hell on the Main, of course, where you could, you could occasionally had an alternative gun pit occasionally shifted around, but there's nowhere much to move. The acreage just wasn't there. But the infantry blokes were the backbone, in my opinion, of the backbone of the army. And it was our job to support them. And support them you did. Where do you find yourself sent to after Tobruk? Well, we were relieved from Tobruk, my regiment, I, because and the Australians were just getting rather worn out with sickness and casualty rates, wastage through lots of things. And, it, and not only that, but the need to bring in whatever supplies and they, we were able to get a little bit more of, a, of our own sort of language coming in. There was a, we were relieved by a British regiment for arguments like my second Fulford religion. And they came in in multiples and virtually relieved us. And we were taken out in multiples for whatever shipping could be available when and how. And we finally went back to Palestine, took over their guns and had the second Christmas in Palestine and then went on from there. Where is your division sent next after leaving Palestine? Well, what happened, we had the second Christmas, again, supported by augmented rations and, and all that sort of stuff. But we were pretty hard nuts by that time, I can assure you. Learned. You wouldn't want to leave anything lying about anywhere. <laughs> Particular mateship was born that nothing in this world had ever altered. That set the pattern for us for the rest of the time we were serving His Majesty. Do you go straight from Palestine to New Guinea or do you come via no, Australia? No. no, we relieved the 7th Division. They were engaged in the Syrian campaign and cleaned up Syria. They were brought home because things were looking more and more serious here in New Guinea and operations in our part of the world. And we, quite frankly, were due, as I understand it, to be brought home after they had left the Middle East. What happened there really was uh, dependent on shipping and everything else. Tobruk having been relieved, the drift of the warfare went on back up the desert again. Tobruk fell the second time. We were in an area up around Tripoli. There's a Tripoli in North Africa and a Tripoli in Syria, up towards the Turkish border. We were in that sort of countryside. The garrison duties in the snow then. That's a nice change of scenery for you. <laughs> That's how it all went backwards and forwards for a while. And we found ourselves, of course, uh, at the mercy then of uh, having to go on to the next stage afterwards. Uh, that was uh, the second Christmas in Palestine and then back up the desert again. But this time we had our 25-pounders with us. Finally. When Tobruk was captured the second time, when the second retreat occurred, it went beyond the border of Libya right down to this place called Al Alamein. We received a, a notification to pack up and within virtually 24 hours, we did have all of our guns lagered together and we were carrying a full load of ammunition at mark time for a, a couple of days at Alexandria to, to draw breath and prepare for our move up to in, straight into action. So what we did then was pinch anything we could. But the retreating stuff, the most horrifying sight I've ever seen in my life. The 8th Army and retreat coming the only way and our division was the only one going the other way. 
the line between the front and Alamein was very scantily sort of held by British troops, South Africans, Indians, you name it. And we moved straight up into position at a place about three miles back and prepared and dawned on the 10th of July, we went straight in. Did you feel confident facing Rommel again? We had no alternative. We didn't even dig the guns and just surveyed them in and we opened I know my gun opened up. The, the 26th Brigade when it went into the main area up the main road. The Australians were given the, the key spot adjacent to the road and about 1,500 metres or 2,000 across a salt pad to the water that the Mediterranean fronted. That was the most fortified area around the place. Al Alamein itself was not much bigger than a shed on it as long as my block of land. Montgomery said it would take about 10 10 days, which it did when the thing finally opened up. It was a pretty big severe. After the initial bombardment, the breakthroughs had to get stronger and they had a fierce counter-attack, of course, and we had good support now from the air. The medium bombers were bombing in groups of 18 at a time and blocks bombing and so forth. These, these, the pendulum had now swung and we felt confident. You ask how your confidence grows a bit to say, well, now we're able to scrap on our own. Now we've got the 25-pounder, which is, we can use it as a howitzer, we can use it as a 30,400 yards maximum on supercharge and so we captured a few prisoners and whatnot, I can recall, just some of the prisoners to go through my gun position to keep walking. How long were you manning the guns at Alamein for? July, and left there in end of November, across the area of, of our time there, and that included the hairy bits of backwards and forwards and win some and lose some, and then the big build-up to, of course, the Battle of Alamein. That was a big exercise. It was a matter of controlling your own reflexes and your your own mindset. You automatically grew a bond of mateship that it wouldn't matter much what happened. You were there for till we did the job, and they were prepared to accept that. And it gave us heart when about halfway down the line we start to see supplies being dug in here, there, and everywhere. One key thing, Alex, that is not written often enough, and that was on in July when the 26th Brigade went in because we were supporting that very early at El Alamein, and they captured the 621 interceptor unit, which was the German eyes and ears, Rommel's eyes and ears in the Middle East. He was in, we understand, in Germany at the time, thinking that having the praises of the Fuhrer and various other things, but they captured that interceptor. Most of the officers spoke English and whatnot, but they captured a lot of documentation and some of the great things that Rommel knew about for two years were revealed and they shut the whole incident down to a large extent. Rommel, when he came back, first thing he wanted to know where the 621 unit was, but he realised that he was in for a bit of a fight then. And tell me about the fight you gave him at the Battle of El Alamein. It was a lot of give and take and fighting because any feature, sand hills or otherwise, was about as high as a two-storey house or not much more. It was a mountain virtually in that type of country, just flat as a board and 
And we had a fight for some of those features. And I know we supported 24th Brigade and lost a battalion pretty well. I got caught in a minefield of one of those features. You're talking hundreds of people killed and, and, and taken prisoner. Our people lost a battalion nearly in one morning. Things like that happened. Uh, and the general build-up, of course, got, and the Germans had minefield the area about 800 metres deep couple of minefields nearly all the way down. All that had to be prepared. While all this was taking place, you moving backwards and forwards, fighting for features, winning some, losing some. But we gradually stabilised it, the division. I'm talking about our sector, 40 odd miles with a lot of other people doing great things too. I can only speak for our own build-up. I can only ask you to speak for your own. We had the principal area of engagement I mean the main, and the build-up, we could see more tanks coming into our area. Uh, at that time, the, the Sherman tank and Grand tank became a big factor. The aircraft were supporting us better in the build-up, and it gradually went on and on and on and on like this. With the opening barrage, it was a big thing, 23rd of October. You remember that vividly? Bit of a hairy thing, about a thousand guns opened up at the one I imagine it was deafening. It was more than deafening. It started at 20 to 10 at night and you had 10 minutes bombardment and nearly all the known artillery positions and then a pause for a short period and then a similar bombardment down on the infantry position and then away we go. The 25-pounders, I think they reckoned there was about 800 opened up and our usage of uh, ammunition, I think, was the first 24 hours or so. Well, they were able to penetrate. They were virtually opened up minefields and they had a couple of failures of getting tanks through at the right place at the right time. But I think we were firing around about 600 rounds 24 hours. That's incredible. The logistics to handle that were by conveyance from base area up, right to the gun. When you stop firing, you just lay down at the bottom of the gun pit and then get up and go when you're told to go. But all these spent shells lying around you as well, it would have just been a absolute chaos yeah, and a yeah. mess. Are you, at this point in the war, quite pleased you're in artillery? You're glad you're not in infantry? I don't, I don't know because uh, your circumstances, it doesn't matter where you are, the, the, the Stugas became heavy artillery. And their, their, and their counter-battery efficiency from both sides, sound ranging and flash spotting, it didn't take them long to get onto your area. And you can relate horrible things. I mean, I mean at Tobruk, for argument's sake, blokes had been out trying to build, dig a, a gun pit for 60 pounds to, to move it into a more suitable position to engage party, a bill that's just... The about 210 millimetre thing, 155 millimetre bomb and a half, shell and a half. The only gunnery that we have that would engage it with some of the old 60 pounders, it took us cannibalising six weapons to keep three or four going and to build you know, the gun pit. The spotter up was very hot and stinking hot, very quiet. Some of my blokes were coming back from one position to another position to where the gun was stationed, digging the gun pit. They bracketed the, the movement with the aerial spotting. They shot virtually either side of the moving field and uh, almost uh, the next one landed in the back of the truck and killed 10 of them in one go. Like all these sorts of things, you, you become a bit of a fatalist. You have to.
Ten of Bob's mates are buried side by side in North Africa. They were killed by the same shell at Tobruk. In an Australian War Memorial article written by Claire Hunter, Bob said this of that incident. They went out trying to dig another gun pit so that they could fire some old 60-pounders that were engaging Bardia Bill, a big heavy German gun that was shelling the city. They tried two or three times to get in, and some of those battles were pretty fierce, and we lost a lot of blokes who were killed one way or another. Ten of them went off in one truckload, and they were coming back from digging in a position. A German spotter plane came up, and they were hit by one shell. All of those things you've got to learn to live with, I suppose. It's a soldier's life. Back to the interview. Well, Bob, the battle is won. Do you go back to Palestine after that or back to Syria? Back to Palestine. We came home, five ships brought us home, and the Queen Mary was the principal carrier. And you left the 25-pounders? Left all the equipment there. Had to part with your new friends so soon. Good, good, good boy. <laughs> Let's do a bit of a time jump forward. When are you deployed to New Guinea? We came home and we had the, uh, the division had landed at different ports. The convoy broke up as we neared Australia. And they had various marches through the town of the whole division and all that sort of stuff. Quickly assembled again, three weeks leave up to the Athenian Tablelands and then started to prepare for uh, learning to get into green gear and so forth and uh, jump out of boats at uh, Trinity Beach and these other places. Forget the desert, get to know the jungle. Straight in and then we, my unit, we sailed from uh, Townsville up to Mill Bay anchored the mill boat till our guns arrived and then we loaded onto landing craft, assembled in groups and so forth and were conveyed in a, a landing expedition up and did the seaborne landings at Ley and seven div went up and mostly airdropped into the Markham Valley and they came down from the hills onto Ley and we came in from the sea, took Ley and then they decided to send a brigade about another hundred miles further up and I was with that crowd, second troth field regiment with the only artillery that went with it. Uh, and we went up and landed at Finchhaven and then we remained there for nearly eight, eight months. So you've fought off the Italians and the Germans in the desert and now you're in the jungle fighting the yeah. Japanese. Yeah. That's an incredible war. That's an amazing amount of action. All within months. How did you guys feel about that? Were you exhausted? Well, we suffered a lot of wastage, you know, with casualties, of course, and, and malaria. We were treated with adamant and stuff like that. But the system was starting to show signs of wear, you know, and the new disciplines had to happen. We probably lost 70, 60, 65% of our casualties, mainly through malaria and whatnot. Sickness. Were some of your mates starting to show signs of mental fatigue as yeah. well? Yeah. A few of them did away with themselves. How'd you cope? I don't know. I, I felt periods of weariness, of course. But I, thank the Lord, I, I'm a believer. I, I believe in fate. I believe in, in a supreme being, only in so much as I'm not a crank. But reality, I just says, if my time has come, it has come. I'm prepared for that. We haven't finished the job yet, but that was it. And you stick around and you finish the job in New Guinea as best you can. And we came back home again. Uh, we chased the Japs, uh, Saddleberg and Finch Harbour were hard going. 
the very mountainous and all the time the Japanese are retreating, they're shortening their line of communication and whatnot, poorly conditioned. When we finally came away from there, we chased them about up towards CO, S-I-O, it's about 80 miles further up the coast and we were pretty well exhausted, you know. It's keeping pace with the leapfrogging and so forth and in and out of landing craft and so forth. And then they retired us and, re- and we were relieved by another artillery regiment from one of the other divisions. Can I ask on that, in that in the desert, I can quite clearly picture you operating your 25-pounders or whatever equipment you scavenge at Tobruk and how that works in desert warfare. How different is it for you working with artillery in the jungle? Well, we did have some short 25-pounders, but we we, we, weren't, we didn't like them much. The ordinary using an ordinary 25-pounder, but no limber behind it. Like the unit, as far as a travelling unit was, was concerned, had a prime uh, tractor. That was the Poms used a quad that was a sort of a, more like a tank arrangement, like a big beetle. And you were locked in, it was like being locked in an oven. We didn't like it much at all. And it had the, the limber that came on behind it with ammunition in it and then the gun unit itself, had three pieces. There. But we were able to get some Marvin Harringtons, which were canvas sort of hood arrangement at the back with two seats in the back and a canopy that you could open up and, and we liked them. Who was your toughest opponent? Oh, I would say two different types. Two wars were different. German was a, a still, I think, the most efficient soldier in the lot. The most callous, of course, by reputation, and otherwise the Japanese. You mentioned you, for example, came close to German prisoners. Did you ever come close to Japanese soldiers? Oh, yes. And especially, and more particularly, when we, the, the bigger danger, I think, at the towards the end of the war, wandering about in Borneo, when we finally got there, as the odd bods were roaming about the place there. The ball is rolling and the Japanese are retiring up towards this place called Sio and more up towards Wewak that way. We up sticks at that time. We were in motion, you might say, and they said, well, that's enough. We've got another artillery division unit to take over. And you were chasing the Japanese until March 1944. But before we come home, tell me about your fourth Christmas away in World War Two, Christmas 1943. It was fairly hollow sort of a thing, a no-go situation. You're just in action in appalling conditions. It was just another day? Just another day. In conditions hardly varied. It was wet and sticky and mud up to your eyebrows and then you'd run into a kunai patch and it'd be reasonable. But appalling conditions. So you come home in March 1944 and then you get married? Yeah. When did you meet your wife? Before the war. And she'd been waiting for you to yes. finally be home to yes. get married. My one and only girlfriend. What was her name? Isabel Buchanan. And so you tie the knot in March, April 44? Yeah. And then you get, I imagine it's a very brief honeymoon, and then you're back to Barracks. Married in the same Sunday school as I went to, and uh, in Essendon here. And uh, as a matter of fact, Thought with my one of my gun sergeant mates was I was number one gunner, he was number three, he was the best man, and uh, Margaret, my sister, was a bridesmaid. Married in the church down here because everything was rationed in those days. Anyhow, but the farming people, she come from a farm farming family in Rochester, 
and uh, she was took a job during the war in the ammunition works. She worked three shifts at the ordnance factory during the whole of the war, and we were planning to get married. Anyhow, I was young, probably invested in a block of land over, and, and she worked us three shifts and kept going, and then she came back from the Middle East, and I said, no, I won't get married because uh, you'd be better if I got, if I was knocked off, well, you'd be better on your own, you know, so we'll stick around and we'll play it for you. So we did that and then I went away to New Guinea and then come back. And I thought things were starting to take a bit of shape then in the, in the Pacific. And You were confident enough to we're, tie the knot? confident enough. And anyhow, the day I got married and went to Dalesford, which is just a, up out of Ballarat sort of thing, it was just a nice little country area. But I only just turned up there and I had a malaria attack and started to relieve myself of blood and so forth so I went into hospital and I had five different courses of malaria treated on the way between rejoining my unit up on the tablelands again. Went into hospital at Bandiana they had collapsed on the railway station and and then got to Red Lynch and the other Brisbane did the same and finished in hospital in Warwick and finally got back to my unit and spent about the next six months or so rebuilding the unit up again. You rebuilt your own constitution after the trauma of New Guinea caught up with you, and then you go through back to your unit, which is rebuilding after suffering casualties in the Pacific. And although you were right to take confidence in that the Pacific was taking shape and war was going the Allies' way, your action's not over. Although the war in Europe is finished by the time you reach Moratai, in May 1945, you're in the landings in Borneo. Is that Tarakan? We went via Moratai. We sailed from Queensland, went in cargo ships in those cases and sailed up to Moratai. It was in the Helmaheras group. And there was still some Japanese in occupation, but the Americans were fairly strongly embedded there. We re- had to wait for our guns to arrive when they arrived. So they were loaded onto the whole division was loaded up at Moratai. And we sailed for 10 days in appalling condition, really, with these sort of vessels, tropical area, and only travelling as fast as the slowest vessels in the convoy. And the division split as we approached Borneo. Incidentally, 7th Division were down at Balak Pap, and that's down the bottom. Well, we went in with uh, 20th and uh, 26th Brigade, two brigades, into Tarakan, which is on the east side. There's like a big potato. We sailed in. I was with the brigade that went up around the top, the 24th Brigade, and landed on an island called Labuan, L-A-B-U-A-N. The casualties at Tarakan were utterly appalling, and considering that late stage in the war, they didn't need to be. But so many lives were lost. How was the action for you? Oh, I think there was, there was a certain amount of political strain happening around about the place, I think, uh, because we were mindful of the fact that one of the saddest days in our history, of course, was the Sandakan death march. Well, we landed on the on that side there, and our biggest feeling that we'd let the troops down in a way was the fact that we couldn't get the shipping, the division couldn't get the shipping from MacArthur, who was in supreme command, and he was mainly interested in the Philippines. And for good reason, that they're people running the, the game of dice, you know, and telling you where you're going to go and what you could get. But we might have been able to do something for those thousand lives that were lost in that death march. That was between Sandakan and Ranau up on that the top area where we are. We went right up round the top, landed on and took this place called Labuan, an island with a strip on it. 
we watched the bombardment going and we just poured straight out into the sea into these vessels with a 25-pounder in a Caterpillar-type vehicle and it opened the bowels of the ship up and we went straight in. And the fortresses of the American uh, Air Force had bombed the beach and we had more problems getting through the holes in the beach than anything else. However, we went across landed on the mainland, went up the Pardis River for about 50 miles in, in small landing craft and I'm speaking now for my own unit in two or three different places and it went to a, in British North Borneo it was called in those days to a place called Beaufort and stayed there till the end of the war the Japanese threw in the towel of course that's a big I think mainly because Hiroshima and the atomic bomb had dropped and helped them make up their mind what they were going to do. Between Hiroshima and Nagasaki that brought the war to a decisive yeah, end. it happened very rapidly and then. What guns were you firing? 25 pounds. So how long were you at uh, Labuan for then? Three months? No, well, I, I don't think we were there quite that long. We, we got the job done there. You could see the mainland not far across. It was basically like looking across the bay, 30 miles, I suppose, and then we went across and just landed in that area because the Japanese were retreating up into those corners. They finally had a surrender there anyhow in due course. So the biggest action there for you was landing on the beach? Pretty well. We had casualties, of course, and, and, and sickness was the problem too. Things can't happen quick enough for you. Well, the job's done. We know it's done. The cleaning up period was a bit awkward from time to time because still Japanese people wandering about the bush and none of them finished. And, and it was a bit of bother with that sort of uh, combing and tidying up but they assembled us back at Labuan again uh, loaded us on the craft and then we came via their back from Moratai and then home and you're discharged on the 13th of November 1945 yeah took a bit of leave and needed to be medically examined and so forth and tidied up and and I went, went back to work as soon as I could Rejoined the company because I liked the job. I loved the company itself, and it was something that I was going to, wanted to make a career out of. It was a big company; it offered scope, and I, I, I liked this sort of atmosphere. I had designs on wanting to be in that type of stuff, manufacturing and all that sort of stuff, and went back into exactly the same position as I left, and were given every opportunity to take advantage of choosing whether I became an accountant type, management type of facts and figures, or merchandising. I chose to be uh, uh, involved in the manufacturing and the marketing of merchandise. We reached retiring age. The company asked me if I'd stay on in a consultancy capacity, and I worked until I was 76. And how old are you today, Bob? 98. And we're speaking in July 2018. It's been quite a life. How did you find adjusting to life after the war? Did the war affect you greatly in the years beyond? Well, the physical side of it, you have scars there that will never go. You'll never reach your potential of 20 years of age and, and all the functions you have. You have certain things that come back physically to you. The spleen, for instance, was five and six courses of malaria, and that kept coming back for a period of time. Uh, it was pretty distressing. I thankfully didn't have many holes in my body or that sort of stuff, so I didn't have those worries to attend to. I was blessed, actually, in that regard. Been in some horrible situations. 
Uh, they don't ask the questions why a shell comes into a gun pit and kills some of the crew and it doesn't kill others and you wonder why. But you learn to just try and put that to one side. It'll never leave your mind. This is where the body and mind come to. And then the process, it weakens certain parts of your, your physical being. But you learn to balance your life to compensate for those shortcomings and those things that you say, well, where I say I'm a fatalist, I, I believe that that's the way it's got to be. Your God-given attributes that you have if you like to believe in something. Keep decent values because I feel you can have all the BMWs about the place and all these sort of things, but the thing that you've got to satisfy most of all that I've found in life is I'm not perfect, don't get me wrong, but unless you can satisfy your soul, and I'm not a religious crank, don't get me wrong, because the shell that comes your way hasn't got Catholic, Protestant or Jew or anybody else attached to it. You'll learn to accept those things and say, yes, we've got, but get your own ship in order. You've got to satisfy your own soul when it all comes to the judgment of what you do and how you do. Dismiss artificial creations and face up the reality as most much as you can. Don't overplay the field. I've always been a team player. Is that how war also affected you mentally? It gave you this outlook, this focus and this philosophy on life. It taught me to accept things a little more readily and correct things that were within your power to, to try and overcome difficulties because none of us are perfect and it, it, it's not paradise, life's not paradise. But I suppose I can only balance it and say let's balance the scales of justice with equal poise if you can and some of the most cherished moments i've had have been the simplest ten of your mates are buried side by side in the desert of north yep. africa and there's a special connection there with some of those mates and a violin you took to war can you tell me about that yeah well that happened actually it didn't take the violin into into tobruk uh, because it was all i went into tobruk was to uh, have a second water bottle but I assume you left it in Palestine? Oh, yeah. Took it right from Melbourne. All the way to Palestine. Left it in Palestine. Yeah, we had a few concerts here. there. And so you were playing this violin and you've got the names of your gun crew inscribed on the yeah, back of it. Yeah, that, that was at El Alamein mainly. If and when we're preparing for minor engagements during that period of six months or more at El Alamein, the vehicle would be away from when it wasn't away. The old violin had come out and, it, and that's where we'd scratched it in the gun pits. Bob, of all those different gun crews you worked with throughout the war, how many of your mates who you fought with are still with us today? Are you one of the last? I think one of the last of them that, that uh, my gun crew passed away only a few days ago. I was never a champion at anything, but I was always able to win a place in the team. And I think that that was great. And those mateships and that, that you build around, the qualities that come out in people are come out sometimes funny and sometimes... Well, Bob, my interpretation is you've always been a team player, either as part of the team or leading the team. Today, you're president of the Victorian Rats of Tobruk Association. I know the extensive amount of work you've done with various pipes and drums, bands and other associations over the years. You... I've always been wanting to give to your fellow soldier and your fellow man. You have a lot of heart and I can see how that 
incredible character was forged in the deserts of Tobruk and El Alamein and then in the jungles around Ley, Finchhafen, Labuan and Borneo. Alex Money couldn't buy it. Only life experience. Bob Semple, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you, Alex. Bob Semple spoke at the 2018 Anzac Day National Ceremony at the Australian War Memorial. It was a true honour to meet Bob. I hope you enjoyed listening to his story. If you did, please let us know. You can comment on our social media posts, email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com and leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast app. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget...